Alrighty, everybody. It is February of 2024, and one of our favorite topics has started to pop up again in the broader discourse around CMMC, the False Claims Act and the Department of Justice's Cyber Civil Fraud Initiative. Uh, we've covered this on the show several times before, and it's one of it is one of the topics I would say that probably gets the most engagement, but also the most sort of uh, uh, verbal doubt expressed about it. So when you're talking to people about the False Claims Act and cyber civil fraud, what the DOJ is doing, it's like the boogeyman where everybody's like, I don't really believe that that's true, but I want to hear about what you know about the boogeyman. And that seems to be a common pattern over the last two years. So as I sometimes do, I jumped on LinkedIn and... I've come across Alex Kenazares' content before, and uh, he recently attended a very interesting event where the Cyber Civil Fraud Initiative and the False Claims Act was a big topic amongst uh, attorneys and the DOJ-type crowd. So Alex is here today to tell us what he knows, what he heard, what he's learned, what people should be aware of. Uh, so Alex, first time, first time caller on the show. Maybe introduce yourself and give us a brief background about who you are and what you do. Great, Jacob, thanks for having me. Glad to be with you and to talk about the False Claims Act and how it relates to cybersecurity. So uh, I'm a partner in the government contracts practice group at Perkins Coie in uh, Washington. And um, I practice uh, on, I focus on government contracts. You'll have, to, you'll have to excuse Jason, I apologize. Come, you couldn't even get through, you couldn't even let the man get through his intro before you were making cooey jokes. Now, I will say in preparation for this episode, How, like, come on, man. I apologize. It's like fate, right? It's like fate here. Is like, it, okay, I have to, I'll, I was going to save this for the end of the show. I have to ask now, is it a joke uh, um, at the firm in the contract section about the fact that they call the data that is driving so much of this conversation Cooey, and the firm's name is Perkins Cooey. I honestly have not heard that joke made no before, way. and this I is no not way. I, right now. But I will tell this you, is not I studiously avoid referring to CUI <laughs> as Cooey. I'm one of those people, so uh, you know maybe that's why I've just sort of turned right. myself well, out from that joke. Well, have your marketing team reach out to our marketing team. I think there's a lot of potential here for some solid memes. Our, um, our people should talk. We should we should talk. I apologize, Jason. Please Sorry, control yourself, Alex. Please continue. Please excuse my lack of professionalism. I apologize. Yeah, no, no problem. So, yeah, like I said, I, I, I represent government contractors in litigation, investigations, and regulatory counseling related to federal procurement. So, uh, I'm a partner in our group. We have a number of attorneys focused on government contracts. And, um, part of my practice includes False Claims Act defense. So we work with companies to, you know, represent companies in, in investigations or litigation related to the False Claims Act. And my, my practice also involves a lot of cybersecurity counseling these days. So the 7012 clause, you know, NIST compliance, the various issues that I know you spend a lot of time focusing on. Um, and, you know, a lot of our clients are in the defense aerospace, uh, technology, professional services, healthcare sectors, all the, the range of companies that do business for the government that are concerned about cybersecurity these days. Um, I, came to Perkins in 2019 and I spent uh, almost six years in the Justice Department before that as a trial attorney. So I was handling primarily government contracts litigation uh, in the civil division. 
and um, you know, sort of bring a litigation perspective to some of these issues. Uh, before that, I was in private practice at another DC firm for about another six years, and so uh, you know, I spent my career in, in DC. Yeah, very interested to hear your perspective, especially with your DOJ, you know, sort of trial attorney background here. Uh, the fact that you sort of went from DOJ to now assisting folks with these issues, I think, uh, really rounds out your perspective on what's going on. Like I said before, you know, we've talked about the False Claims Act quite a bit on the show. We've had other attorneys come on and sort of give perspectives on the False Claims Act. But for this, the sake of, of the audience, depending on how people come across this episode, could you maybe give us just a quick primer on what is it? Why is this suddenly seeming seemingly suddenly related to cybersecurity? What does this have to do with the DOJ? Sort of describe the, the boogeyman for us here. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the False Claims Act is actually a very old statute. It was originally enacted during the Civil War, and it's sometimes referred to as Lincoln's Law because it came out of a concern about fraud against the Union Army. And that was sort of the original purpose of the statute was to address fraud against the government. And it wasn't until about 1986, in 1986, there were amendments to the statute that Senator Grassley and others pushed through that strengthened the, the FCA and made it the sort of the robust mechanism that it is today. Um, it was also amended in 2009 and 2010. Um, but basically, for the last several decades, it is the primary civil statute that the government uses to combat fraud against the government. The government. So it is um, not a criminal statute. And for that reason, the government's burden of proof is lower than you might have in a criminal case. So um, it has to be proved by a preponderance of the evidence um, standard. And the Department of Justice is charged with uh, enforcing the FCA. Um, it's the, in particular, in the civil division, the civil fraud section, which is in the commercial litigation branches, basically enforces the statute. And all the U.S. attorney's offices around the country, the DOJ attorneys are out there, you know, bringing these cases. In some cases, they're um, taking over cases filed by whistleblowers. Um, and every year, DOJ announces billions of dollars of recoveries under the statute. So the cybersecurity developments are a recent, you know, um, use of the statute, but it has been on the books for a long time. Mm -hmm. It has been used a lot in healthcare, life right. sciences context. I mean, if you look at the numbers every year that DOJ issues, and I think they're about to probably publish their, their stats for the last fiscal year, a lot of the dollars that go out the door or go to the government in these cases are in involving healthcare. Um, one of the things that makes the statute so powerful and so risky for companies is the QUITAM provision. And that's the part of the statute that enables a private person or private party to bring a lawsuit. They effectively stand in the shoes of the government to bring a lawsuit uh, on behalf of the government, alleging fraud against the government. And the government and DOJ at that point has an election to make about whether to take over that case you know, intervene and conduct an investigation and then, you know, decide, do we want to take this case and make it our own or allow the, the whistleblower, the relator to continue on, on their own? And the incentives are very powerful because basically a relator, if they prevail or if the government gets any money, a relator can obtain between 15 and 30 percent of any recovery. So and if there's a judgment sometimes in the millions of dollars, right? Absolutely. And I mean, we've seen in recent years, 
um, a, a number of cases where relators are obtaining, you know, very large judgments in the millions of dollars, depending on what the nature of the claims are. But, you know, and, and the, the department will also look at with the level of, you know, input and contribution that the relator made. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're familiar with the, the, the most prominent cybersecurity case that we've seen under the FCA today, it involved Aerojet, Rocketdyne, and this was a settlement that was now a couple of years old from 2022. But that was a case filed by a relator. It was someone inside the company at Aerojet, Rocketdyne, who uh, was closely involved in their cybersecurity compliance, who alleged that there was fraud in the way that they were representing their, their compliance. And that sort of general, you know, uh, theory of liability under the FCA is what is now being used under the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. Yeah. Jason, did you have a, I think you had a question. Yeah, just over some of the things that you uh, went over just briefly there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, and I thought I caught it correctly, you said the, these type of cases require a lesser burden of proof. Yeah, just compared to a criminal statute. So if you think about, you know, a criminal case is you have to prove uh, the government has to, you know, if they're going to charge someone with a crime has to be proved by, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so this is a civil statute. So it's just proved by basically, you know, 51 percent. You can think of a burden of proof of like 50 more than 50 percent to, to prove those allegations. Yeah. So, so it's making sure that I process that correctly and that, you know, the listeners process that correctly, the proof needed to establish a successful FCA claim is less than needed to prove that somebody stole a car essentially. Right. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so Dif you know, different, different type of, sure. yeah, 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 perhaps yeah, yeah, more complicated, just, but yes. And then, yep. so, Oh, good. Well, so here's here's my question, because, you know, I know that historically a lot of the FCA recoveries and, and cases have been in the healthcare sector. And I've heard I don't know if this is actually true. I've heard that. And intuitively, it would seem that if a IT admin security type person is blowing the whistle, they would be pretty close to the, uh, you know, alleged fraud inside this organization, because typically uh, in a lot of these small organizations, they're the ones that are being forced to take these actions uh, that they necessarily don't agree with. So it, it almost seems like in the cyber domain, and I don't know if this is true, it seems like the people who are most likely to be whistleblowers are also closer to identifying the fraud and sort of taking this forward is would you say that that's true or, or maybe not really well i i think that is the category of people that doj is most interested in when this in civil cyber fraud initiative was uh released one of the things that certainly caught my attention and others as well was doj really resoundingly calling for whistleblowers to step forward and bring these cases and the cases that doj is going to be most interested in are the ones where there really is personal knowledge on the part of the relator the whistleblower that's that says we actually know what the what the non-compliance is you know i actually know you know who's involved and be able to establish that there is knowledge because in order to demonstrate liability the government actually has to prove not only that there's a non-compliance but that there is knowing mm -hmm. a, a submission of a false claim that's knowingly made and, and so is, that knowledge component is critical. And and this is not knowingly as in I didn't know, right? This is a this is a term that we've we've 
tried to sort of explain over the past we're not we're not lawyers but knowingly to an attorney means something different than to the average person right like this has a specific meaning in this context it has a very specific meaning that has been the subject of a lot of litigation under the false claims act and just to summarize it briefly i mean basically the statute actually defines the term knowing to include not only actual knowledge but reckless disregard and deliberate ignorance and that reckless disregard is probably viewed as the most you know the broadest application of the concept of knowing and when you know when we advise clients who deal with this area we you know it's very uh, risky for a company to just turn turn a blind eye to its compliance because if you're recklessly disregarding what you need to do the government can make the case that you've knowingly you know submitted a false claim depending yeah. on the other elements of liability so knowing in this context is is very um it's much easier or it's the broader standard if you will then you might have to show in a different case where it's actual knowledge so if, or if specific somebody, intent. If, if somebody internally could say, hey, I notified them that this was the way that the cookie crumbles and I was trying to make it work and they said no and they made me a test and we submitted a, a score that wasn't accurate and I told them not to do it. Is that sort of building towards this idea of knowingly disregarding what's going on? It's, yes. It's, that's, it, that's a very, very common situation. It, it, well, it's a that kind of fact pattern is the one that that these cases uh, typically bring, and not just in cybersecurity, but mm -hmm. you know, if you look at you know, and just give you a very concrete example, the case that's now pending um, involving um, Penn State University and their cybersecurity scores, their SPUR scores that were allegedly uh, you know submitted that did not um, you know that were misrepresented in effect based on the allegations in that complaint. There is, you know, an effort to plead in the complaint that this was a knowing noncompliance. And you need to, you know, they need to have specific facts that actually set that out in order to get that through a motion to dismiss. And these things get litigated. But basically, and the Justice Department is going to be most interested in the cases where there really is an intentional mm -hmm. uh, effort, you know, or not an effort, but a failure, a breakdown, if you will, in the compliance and that those facts can be very difficult to prove uh, in the absence of someone who's inside the company. But the other thing I would mention about relators in these cases is that um, you don't need to be a per, an insider in a company to bring a QUITAM case. And, you know, there are cases in recent years where a competitor has brought a QUITAM case or a um, you could have theoretically a subcontractor or a partner and and these you know risks are out there for companies to be thinking about in the sense that you know somebody who comes into possession of information about wrongdoing you know is could be incentivized to bring one of these cases yeah yeah we've got you know so i think some other questions coming up here I, one thing that popped up when you said the doj will sometimes join a case or not join the case and then you mentioned penn state i think this is a good example it seems like one of the things that prevents people i think from locking in on this being a real potential threat is that it seems very plodding to the average person where you heard about Aerojet, but then there was a decision reached. No one gets hauled off in handcuffs. You know, there's DOJ isn't like kneeling with their, you know, with their ARs in front of a pile of fraudulent money, right? Like there's no, there's no, there's nothing to sink your teeth into in terms of what's going on here. Like you hear that the whistleblower got paid, but not really. 
DOJ didn't join the Penn State case, but when you read the complaint, I mean, it's, I, I remember posting about it on LinkedIn. It's, it's a crazy story to read in this uh, complaint. What would cause the DOJ to not join a case or decide to join a case? I don't, I don't know if we've ever actually heard that explanation. Yeah, happy to address that. And by the way, I mean, the Penn State case, it's not it's still possible for DOJ to intervene mm -hmm. in that case. I think what they said is that we were not intervening at this time in order to continue our investigation. And the last I checked on the docket in that case, that case is still it's been stayed. It's just pending so that DOJ can continue their investigation. But yeah, the, these cases, it's the government will is required to do an investigation. So if somebody files one of these cases, it's filed under seal. It's not publicly available. So company will not even know that they're under investigation. Wow. The government receives a copy of that complaint. It gets distributed to various people who have you know, a stake in, in, in what they're uh, investigating. But DOJ will do an investigation and then basically determine, is it in the interest of the United States to take this case over? And they're going to they're going to consider a whole variety of things, but they're basically going to look at how strong a case is this? Yeah. You know, how strong is the evidence that this is actual fraud? And based on the actual complaint, you know, the complaint on its face might be rather thin, but they're still going to do an investigation to verify that it's thin. So gotcha. even a flimsy complaint is going to get investigated. And at the end of the day, the government is really going to be concerned about you know, what kind of information is at issue? What's the nature of the contract in the case of cybersecurity? You know, they're going to think about what are the government's losses? And that's going to be a key issue, I think, in these cases is what are damages going to look like? So it's it's a variety of factors. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, what spurred this conversation was I saw you post on LinkedIn that you had recently attended the American Conference Institute's False Claims and Ketam Enforcement Conference, which sounds like a barrel of laughs. Uh, however, when you posted about it, you said that there were some uh, sessions on there that were specifically focused on cybersecurity, false claims act, cyber civil fraud initiative, and that you had some specific takeaways. So do you maybe want to, first of all, what is the ACI? Um, and, and what did they say when it was just a bunch of lawyers in the room talking about this cyber issue? Sure. Yeah, the, this particular conference is among several that those of us who practice in the False Claims Act, you know, space uh, might attend. This one was in New York. Uh, so cybersecurity was one of the panels that was addressed. I think in recent years, going to similar conferences like this, I would say cybersecurity is just a re recurring, you know, topic. And I think we're seeing, you know, more people focusing on it who may have in the past not been at all focused on cybersecurity, in particular, you know, relators counsel. So the, 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 the lawyers who represent relators who bring these cases and those, um, you know, there was a, this particular panel, there was a relators counsel who actually represents the relator in the Penn State case who spoke uh, about, you know, what's going on with cybersecurity. Um, there were some other, you know, panelists from uh, defense contractor and private, uh, you know, private pr practitioner, but essentially covering, you know, what's the landscape, you know, for cybersecurity, for False Claims Act, highlighting all of the various regulatory changes for CMMC, the pending FAR rules, uh, for incident reporting, 
um, and highlighting, I think what, you know, I think it's fair to say is a heightened risk for contractors um, yeah. talking about some of the recent cases. And, and there's only been a few cases that have actually been publicly available. But, I, you know, certainly what this panel highlighted the fact that there's a lot of pending cases that are under seal. We don't know about them yet, but we will see them and there will be either a press release or some litigation that brings them to light. And I think it's just a matter of time before that happens. Yeah, we um, actually spent uh, one of our episodes recently listing out the things that we expect to see that happen in our industry or things that we think are going to happen. And and one of Jacob's predictions was a, a, a string of FCA claims coming to surface, right? Things being unsealed and us hearing more and more about it. Um, do you feel like that, uh, it, would you be on that side of the prediction, like from where you stand, what you see, um, that you would see an increased activity and more interest in FCA uh, moving forward, like especially from contractors and, and the vertical that we deal with? I think that's definitely the case. And that's been, that's based on my own practice and working with clients and, and, you know, what I've seen publicly. And I think there are signs of increased activity investigations that are pending. You know, these, these investigations typically do take a long time to, mm -hmm. to be conducted. And so you never, you know, it's sometimes it does seem like these drag on and maybe you're, like you say, maybe people sort of doubt the, yeah. the risk. But I think this is just a matter of time before we see more cases unsealed. And this initiative is probably going to be uh, continuing to go for some years, honestly. I mean, if you look at the White House cybersecurity strategy that was released earlier this year, it actually called out the civil cyber fraud initiative in that report. I thought that was really notable because it shows that, you know, this is not just some DOJ initiative. Um, this is a multi-agency initiative, and it's something that the White House has actually put a stamp of approval on. So yeah. I think this is going to be around for quite a while. So so within the context of these sorts of conferences where it's people who are, you know, DOJ, former DOJ, they work in the space, they represent during litigation, people either blowing the whistle or people defending against people blowing the whistle, that this is this is sort of a... Uh, a, a known fact that this just sort of is the trend in the industry. This isn't this isn't like some new thing to everybody at these conferences, is it? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, some people are probably still trying to get their arms around some of the legal issues. I think that's increasingly going to be the case. I mean, honestly, going back years now, the Aerojet case, and there, I think even before that, there was a settlement with Cisco uh, that was one of the first warning signs that cybersecurity was going to be a false claims act, you know, uh, minefield. So I think the, the the problem is there, but I it's been there for a while. But I think the risks are very much heightened now. And I would say, you know, CMMC probably creates some new concerns as well. Yeah. Now, just to clarify a couple of things you were talking about there. So the relators bar is these are law firms that represent the relators. So these are law firms that when someone blows the whistle against a company, they take the case and sort of shepherd this case through the system. So there are there are uh, law firms whose business model is to represent people who have blown the whistle to then take them through. I assume to then their, you know, their fees are paid out of this, this treble damages payout, but there are, there are law firms whose sole orientation is to facilitate people blowing the whistle. Exactly. Yes. And there, yeah, I would say the that conference, 
they have a whole national right. conference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the the you know the the sophistication of the relators bar has really increased in recent years, and you know, I think it's fair to say there's there's a lot of um, expertise in bringing these cases that you see. You know that, that you're right, Jacob, in terms of describing like attorney fees get awarded in these cases in addition to the treble damages and penalties, and so there's a lot of money at stake. And you know that the, these firms try to bring cases that they think you know, they stand a chance of, of winning, but they very often they do settle, you know, because the stakes are so high. And, you know, I mean, I, I do think in the cybersecurity area, it's fair to expect that there's going to be litigation that companies faced with these kinds of cases, um, at least some companies are going to want to litig litigate them because yeah. they don't they don't want to pay out a settlement just to make it go away. Well, so, so quick question for you. We're going we're to talk about the risks, the reality of the risks to sort of the average company out there in a little while, but since you brought it up, you know, if if someone blows the whistle against a company, a contractor or a subcontractor, uh, and it settles or it goes to litigation, you know, how, how much money does that cost along that journey, right? I mean, I don't think that that part really gets talked about very much. Sometimes you hear stories about the relator got paid X millions of dollars at the end of this multi-year process, but I mean, the lawyers are getting paid during this process, regardless of what happens, right? Even if the, even if the the it sort of fizzles out and and settles or doesn't go anywhere. I mean, this isn't this isn't a free evolution, right? No, and I mean, I can definitely tell you that it is. It can be an expensive proposition for a company to defend itself against these you know types of allegations, which is why you know, in, at least in my practice, a large part of what I try to help my clients do is mitigate the risk of a false claims act investigation arising in the first place but certainly if you get if you're subject to an investigation it, it can often take uh you know a fair amount of time to get it resolved that might result in a, a settlement it might be that the doj decides to voluntarily dismiss the case but there are various exit ramps for a particular case but there are you know legal costs associated with getting you to that exit and yeah, so yeah. and be, because the government has to do the investigation in order to ter to determine whether it wants to make the case go away or to bring it to its fruition you know that that can sometimes be an expensive proposition or very yeah. often is um uh for so obviously not giving away any specifics here but a lot of times you'll hear people say well thirty thousand dollars for a cmmc assessment is too much money fifty thousand dollars for a CMMC assessment is too much money. Uh, would the, let's say the broad ballpark average life cycle of what would what it would cost somebody going through this multi-year process, is it north of that number? Is it is it way less than that number? You know, what's expensive to the DIB, I think sometimes is a little different than what's expensive in terms of legal costs. And sometimes they're not all that familiar with the broad idea of what could be in store if somebody blows the whistle on them. Yeah, I mean, the legal fees can be in millions, the millions of dollars for these oh. cases that go for years and years. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the case for everything. For those just but, listening, we're, but there's, we're, 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 we're talking on the Perkins Cooey corporate yacht here. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I, we certainly, I mean, my objective in, in any of these cases is to try to achieve something cost efficient for, for defendants in these cases. But, you know, in some cases, companies are subject to, um, you know, having to respond to typically the way these cases come in, if they learn about it, is they receive what's called a civil investigative demand. 
from DOJ that would be basically it's like a civil subpoena. And um, and you know, cybersecurity, you can imagine DOJ asking for all of the you know various documents that a company has, their system security plan, you know, the the various um, basic assessments that they've submitted, those that type of information. And it can be, you know, that that typically can be an involved process just to respond to that. Um, you know, I, the fees are going to vary by what the case is, but it is fair to say that these cases can be extend extensive and definitely expensive as well. Maybe as a maybe as a rule of thumb, and I don't know if this is right, but maybe as a rule of thumb, based off what you're saying, responding to a civil investigative demand, if you have to if you have to come up with the evidence, if you have to prove what's going on, this sounds somewhat similar to preparing for an assessment. So maybe the time and cost of the government estimate, which is sometimes upwards of $100,000 to prepare for mm. proving that these things are implemented, maybe broadly, we're sort of talking about that range, you know, if just in terms of hours of how much time it would take to prep, you're either prepping for an assessment for CMMC or you're prepping for an assessment from DOJ. So we're talking, you know, it's, it's real money here. So it's, it ain't cheap. It is real money. And I think, I mean, I guess I, my general, again, takeaway from all of that is that companies that are, you know, trying to assess the impact or the implications of a false claims act investigation is it's, it just underscores the importance of compliance right, right. and, and yeah. mitigating the risk at the front end. So yeah. you hear people talk about the cost of MFA and nobody's talking about the cost of DOJ, right? Like what happens if D right. If DOJ comes, I don't want DOJ to come knocking if I'm a business owner, right? This isn't yeah. like fun or anything like that. Like this is the truth. In relation, basically, which I'll just said, it, the cost differential is substantial. Yeah, he said millions, folks, millions. Yeah. So, well, okay. So, um, you know, we talked about this briefly offline. Uh, we've talked about this beforehand. So, at the end of 2023, the DoD uh, IG released a report, a summary report of previous investigations that they had uh, conducted, previous audits that they had conducted on contractor non-compliance with these various requirements. Uh, which is sort of old news to people that are familiar with what's going on in the industrial base. It's a long-standing problem. However, there was a portion of that report where they talked about their extensive recent cooperation with the DOJ in facilitating these false claims uh, investigations. So you know, what are your thoughts on DOD, DOJ cooperation here uh, in terms of what's going on? I, I, you know, I think we we posted about it and described it and I don't think the light bulb is really going off for people. I mean, they're, what does that mean when they're working together? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's fair to assume and to expect that DOD is going to be working closely with DOJ on these cases because DOD is the, the sort of the agency that actually understands the NIST 800-171 framework and the CUI program and how it applies to defense contractors. And so, um, you know, that particular report, I think it mentioned that DOD, the Office of Inspector General, had been providing subject matter expertise to DOJ in these cases. I think they mentioned five investigations in particular that they're working on or had worked on, you know, in the nature of providing, um, you know, reviewing third party cybersecurity assessments, uh, looking at cyber incident reports looking at a company system security plan, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it, it really makes sense if you think about it. DOJ is going to rely on DOD 
and the DIBCAC in particular to kind of help them understand, is this really a non-compliance? You know, what's the, what do you make of, you know, this company that's alleged to have submitted a false score through, through the SPUR system, you know, and, 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 you know, trying to vet these types of cases. And I think it's fair to expect DOD is going to be heavily involved in that. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind too, is that DOD has independently been trying to remind, you know, the, the services and the contracting workforce of, cybersecurity non-compliance. And there was an issue or there was a memo issued in June of 2022 to the services that basically reminded everybody, hey, the 7012 clause is out there. You need to be protecting CUI. It's critically important. And saying to basically to contracting officers, you have all these remedies available to you if there's a cybersecurity non-compliance, including, you know, terminating the contract or you know referring it and so i think that the 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 it's there's a close partnership i think between dod and doj in these kinds of cases and i i think you know it's what's also going to be really important too is when there's an issue that gets litigated like what does adequate security mean you know what is this particular nist 800-171 control material those kinds of legal issues are going to really implicate the program. And you might have a district court judge issue a decision that says, you know, what this control requires and, and what it means. And that's really important for, for people who are just trying to comply. Right. So I think DOD is going to be, they're going to care to get the right result in, in those kinds of cases. Yeah. I mean, so when it comes to CMMC 2.0, uh, you know, one of the big features of the proposed rule is a huge emphasis on annual affirmation, annual attestation of compliance. So not only do we have the 7008 provision that says you are attesting that you will implement these requirements and comply with the follow on 7012 clause, you also have the 7019 provision that causes you to calculate and upload a score and the 7020 clause that says we can come check it. And then now you've got the CMMC program that's saying, in addition, you will be affirming annually and anytime there's any assessment of your requirements. Uh, is this feels like the kind of thing that would be right up the alley of this cooperation between DOD, DOJ, this increasing emphasis on claims to the government, knowingly false claims? Is, is that the right way to think about from the DOJ perspective of that feature of the rule? I think so. Yes. I mean, honestly, I think that this aspect of CMMC, the self-attestation requirements, definitely creates heightened False Claims Act, you know, exposure for contractors and individuals. And I think that the rulemaking, you know, I think that was really what was behind those those um, self-attestations is trying to hold people accountable. And it really it's putting a requirement on a significantly larger number of companies I mean, you think about the universe of companies that already under the 7012 clause and the 7019 clause have to do the basic assessments and submit their scores. They're making a representation. You know, we've implemented X number of the 110 controls, but now you've got the level one CMMC requirement that those companies have to do the self-attestation. And that's a big universe of companies. Right. They only process FCI federal contract information, but they're still going to have to submit these self-attestations. And I, I think that's, you know, it's just going to create new exposure, new potential liability. 
Um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, about the False Claims Act is it's not uncommon to see these cases brought against an individual in addition to a company. Right. So you've there are com lots of settlements every year where, you know, that the DOJ will settle a False Claims Act case with a company. And then there's maybe an executive who's alleged to have, you know, engaged in some wrongdoing and involved involved in the misconduct somehow. And, you know, I, I think my general advice to companies that when they're getting ready for CMMC on this is be very mindful of the False Claims Act. You're going to have to have your, uh, you know, senior management person who's ever responsible under this rule for submitting this attestation. You want that person to be 100 percent prepared to make that attestation and understand what it is that they're signing off on and make make sure that there's a good faith basis for it. Because because not knowing what you're attesting to is not a defense under this knowingly part of the act, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so in terms of of the rollout and impact of CMMC, you know, what it, it impacts, you know, the industry the entire defense industrial base. But one of the statistics that gets brought up about the the DIB is that 75% of the DIB is made up of small companies. And one of the things that we hear very often in discussions around the FCA is that, well, there's just no way that the DOJ is going to be interested in going after smaller organizations. They're just going to go after the big fish. But most of the companies that are making these attestations and dealing with these requirements, seemingly, that would be under the umbrella of this cyber civil fraud initiative are by definition going to be small businesses. So uh, it, is it the case that DOJ is just never going to be interested in smaller companies or does that, is that not really a factor? I, I yeah, I really disagree that, 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 that is very much wishful thinking. If people think that they're not going to go after smaller companies. I mean, if you, you look at what historically the false claims act has been used, there are lots of cases brought against small companies. I mean, you, in recent years, we've seen a lot of companies uh, that are, small but have taken out ppp loans you know and and now they're seeing false claims act enforcement related to that and sometimes for small dollar values now that being said i mean i think i think doj is is going to be more interested in what the facts are rather than the size of the company i think yeah. the kinds of cases that they're going to be most interested in bringing and intervening on and pushing to the you know to the resolution is a case where there's really bad facts, like some a company that's really engaged in very clear wrongdoing, and that can be used as a deterrent effect to other companies. I don't think that they're necessarily going to be thinking strictly, oh, well, this is a small company, so you know, we, we can give them a pass. And you know, look at the Penn State case as another example. I mean, that case is now that was brought by a whistleblower, right? So, but that's a case involving a university. So it's not like the deep pockets are the driving concern here. I think it's more, you know, trying to and figure out where the, where the non-compliance is, where's the, where are the bad actors? Um, and the, the other thing I'd say is, you know, CMMC, as we've, we worried about with 2.0 is the impact on the smalls, right? What is the impact on the small business community? And the proposed rule obviously doesn't really give much dispensation to small businesses. Right. It's basically saying, we need to hold them to the same standard. And so I think you could probably make the same argument as it relates to the False Claims Act. Yeah. So this is this is not something you would consider to be FUD, which is something that we are uh, somewhat often accused of peddling every seemingly every time we even utter the letters FCA, people are like, it's FUD. And I'm like, I don't think so. This 
in your opinion, this is not FUD, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's there's still a lot of uncertainty about how this initiative is going to be how is going to play out. But I I if you're a small business, I would definitely be concerned about the False Claims Act. I don't think there's any reason to just you know be you know think that this is just a big a big company's problem. Well, okay, so we've we've described the boogeyman in the movie here. Can you maybe describe the zipper on the back of the boogeyman suit and make it? a little a little less intimidating are there are there recommendations out there for what companies can do besides like you know do the right thing what what are some of the strategies or steps that companies should consider here yeah absolutely i mean the the i think it starts at least in the cybersecurity context with having your compliance requirements and implementing the controls and being mindful of you know the ever changing guidance that's that you all talk about on this show and elsewhere, but that's just the starting point in terms of false claims act, because, you know, remember that we talked about this knowledge requirement. And I think that really underscores the importance of documentation and having a, you know, a process for documenting your decision-making because there are difficult judgments that need to get made when you're implementing the NIST 100, 171 controls I know you all deal with this. I mean, it's there are judgment calls and there's ambiguity in those rules. And so being able to document that you're making a good faith, reasonable interpretation and having policies that sort of, you know, implement that that documentation and procedures for for, um, you know, addressing uncertainties is important. The other thing, broadly speaking, and a lot of government contractors are, are required to do this anyway under under the FAR is have a ethics and compliance program, robust internal controls. And that really means making sure that you've got capabilities for, if there's some report of wrongdoing, you might have a hotline, you know, you wanna be listening to what people have to say. If there's a concern, make sure that there's a process in place so that that person is not incentivized to go outside the company and decide to bring one of these cases. Listening to that person Hearing that person, even if you might disagree with them, can very often be a helpful way to reduce risk. And so managing whistleblower risk generally is, I think, a good step for people to take. Um, You know, obviously, thinking about CMMC, having a third-party assessment of your systems is going to be very valuable to reduce risk. And I think CMMC is going to be helpful if you've got the certification saying you're level two and you've undergone that assessment. That's valuable to show that you're you're compliant. Um, very you know, interesting. That's a very interesting perspective, I think. Well, I, I, you know, the caveat to that is a, an assessment has to be redone every three years, right? And so you're you're it's a snapshot in time, and so just thinking about this as sort of an ongoing risk area. If you're compliant on day one, but six months later you're not because you've fallen out of compliance somehow, that could be a problem. Um, or that is a problem. <laughs> but the the other the other point I would make too is this these third party assessments when they're done, I expect there's going to be some companies that had you know they've done their basic assessment. They maybe came up with a score that's higher than what the third party assessment is going to show their score actually is. Yeah, that creates a false claims act risk. So yeah, there's a mixed this, bag. We've seen this documented uh, quite a bit by. Uh, DOD's DIBCAC auditing team where they say we can look in the SPRS database and then when they select companies that they go assess, the actual delta is like a hundred point difference. 
between what they uh, what they submitted and then what they were actually assessed against. So it, it I mean, <laughs> that seems to be the case more often than not, which, you, you know, suddenly bringing up FCA then gets us labeled as peddling FUD. But according to what you're saying here, like that's exactly the kind of situation that, you know, companies should try and avoid, right? Is with, using that third party evaluation to insulate yourself against that risk is a, a very refreshing perspective, I think, on on the third part, the value of a third party assessment. Well, I think it is. And I think for some companies now, especially as they're thinking about CMMC or getting ready for it, I mean, having that gap assessment done by independent third party, um, having it done under legal privilege, if possible, to kind of protect against a disclosure to the government if, if necessary, is a useful way to mitigate risks, I think. You know, yeah. and companies need to be thinking proactively about this. Um, so, you know, and again, we've, we talked about the basic assessments. I do think that there's ongoing risk for companies because those requirements are on their, in their contracts right now. So just be mindful of the fact that you've done these basic assessments, you've submitted these scores. What does that documentation show? What does that look like if you get, you know, whether it's a DIPCAC audit or it's, uh, you know, it's some other investigation and just understanding, you know, how do you how do you defend yourself if, the, if there is a question? Now, does now just a question that popped in my mind. Now, if somebody had submitted a score and they, I mean, because honestly, the level of familiarity and stuff, uh, you know, on the on the other side here is quite low, and so there could there's lots of people out there who have maybe attested to things that they didn't intend to. Once they learn more, is is showing a pattern of improvement? You know, even if your original sort of score that you submitted wasn't uh, very accurate is sort of showing this pattern of improvement. If, if something were to come up and people were to start asking questions, does that count as sort of leading towards doing the right thing or, or are pe do people need to be hurrying even faster? Yeah, I think people, I, it's, I think that those, a situation where a company has submitted a score that's just incorrect and not, you know, th there is false claims act risk there. You can't say that's zero, even if they've readily improved since then. I mean, the statute of limitations is six years. It can actually extend to 10 years, right? So think about that in terms of cases going back six years based on where things were in the last six years and prospectively going forward. And so companies, yeah, I mean, there's, um, I mean, I don't want to suggest that, you know, I mean, the companies that are really trying to do the right thing and they're trying to get compliant and they've got their POAM and they're trying to close out the gaps. I think the, the, those are the companies that are going to be less likely to face any sort of False Claims Act exposure. Uh, but th there's a lot of wiggle room in the way that yeah. the statute get, gets enforced. And there's yeah. a lot of room for argument. You know, it's funny that you say the statute of limitations is six years. Pop quiz, everybody. There is language in the proposed rule that talks about data retention for your assessment results. And it just so happens that it's six years what a peculiar coincidence. Um, that's very interesting that that statute is six years because I noticed the data retention requirement, but six years seemed like quite a long time. I wonder uh, I wonder if those two things are related. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but it is interesting. And it, it, I mean, it's true that, um, you know, when companies are faced with a potential investigation, having, you know, processes to retain their documentation is really important. Yeah. Uh, and even and even in advance of that, you want to be able to demonstrate that 
you know, you, you've been complying all along. Um, and so, and it goes beyond just this, the SSP and, and the POAM, you know, it, it means having policies in place that, that show, um, you know, documentation that show that you're, you're doing the right thing. Well, one question I forgot to ask while you were talking earlier, you said a lot of times companies may not even know that they're uh, the target of one of these investigations and that a lot of people in the sort of broader ecosystem don't know that these investigations were happening until they're unsealed. When does a company find out that they were, do they find out when it's unsealed along with everybody else that reads their name in the, in the press release? Like when, when do they actually start to figure that out? Yeah, so that is one scenario where a complaint is unsealed and the company learns about it the same time that it's potentially publicly made available. Another scenario might be where uh, the DOJ decides to partially unseal a complaint in order to actually share it with the defendant. And they can share, and that's in order to begin a dialogue and say, hey, you know, we're doing this investigation. Uh, you know, th these are the allegations that have been made. And they back, they would like invite the company to, you know, provide some um, input, right? And so the company might do its own investigation at that point. And, th and that, that's another scenario. But it's also possible that the company might learn about um, a Quitam through, you know, somebody inside the company. It just comes through some other channel, right? Yeah. They might learn about it. Um, but that uncertainty is something that companies worry about a lot. You know, might, might there be, you know, an investigation going on and we don't know about it. And, um, you know, and the, and DOJ will take these very seriously in terms of the secrecy until they're ready to, you know, unseal. Yeah. Well, geez. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> on that cheery note, uh, I mean, that's, those are all the, the questions that I had, we really appreciate it, Alex, sharing your 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 experience and your background. We're going to link to the Perkins Coie blog. You guys have several awesome uh, blog posts on there. We'll link to your bio as well, which is uh, <laughs> a fascinating read all on its own, uh, based off all the places that you've been and that you've worked. And uh, we'll also drop a link to your LinkedIn profile so that people can keep up with what you have going on. Uh, I just have a sinking feeling based off what you've told me and just sort of watching which ways the winds are blowing that we're going to hear more about this uh, moving into 2024. I mean, I just can't imagine we're not going to see something unsealed that is exactly what we we're just talking about here. It's just there's there's just a lot of smoke out there. Uh, there's just bound to be a fire somewhere. I, I, I think you're right. And I you know, think it's a matter of time before we see more more of these cases sort of come to light. Um, so. Yeah, gl glad to come back on and talk about it more when when that yeah. happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for giving us uh, some advice and some some food for thought here. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be back next week, everybody. Thanks again. Yeah, see you next week. Thanks so much.